0: You're listening to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast at Movie Fail. I'm Josh Rosenfield. I'm here with Soren Howe. We're here to discuss the second episode of season one of Deadwood. It's called Deep Water. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's um, people getting in some deep water, I guess. Uh, they No, they actually explain, of course. They do. What, they do. Uh, I was going to say what it's in reference <laughs> to. Um and I hope I hope every episode has a moment where someone says the name of the episode title because that's my favorite part of any TV show or movie. Is it? <laughs> no, but it's. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I always I always pick up on it like oh they, oh they said the I said it.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I think uh, what I like here is that they say it, but it's it's not like, why well, he sure is in some deep water now. Um, he says like I don't I, I don't think the water should get any deeper or something like that. Um. In re, uh, with regard yeah, to yeah. Bill's um credit to the place that he's he's borrowing money from to gamble
0: yeah um, it's such a weirdly like you know it's such an evocative title we talk about titles all the time on yeah you know, we on do stark <laughs> contrast maybe we'll start doing this on Deadwood too <laughs> but um yeah it's it's a, such an evocative title but uh, the strict relevance it actually has is so kind of weirdly insignificant to the plot of the episode <laughs>
1: insignificant to the plot of the uh, episode but certainly um uh foreboding about Bill and his gambling debts, you know, um and and also just who he's pissed off and who who Seth's pissed off and how everybody seems to be kind of not really happy with their entry into the town. Um so yeah, you're right, yeah, it's not. Yeah. Um but like people are trying to kill people in this episode, so that's pretty significant. And a lot of <laughs> a lot of people die actually. Um if they keep killing people at this rate there's not gonna be anybody left in Deadwood. Um <laughs> which I realized. But um and in any case, uh yeah, this was a this was a, so it's funny, you know, unlike Game of Thrones there's it's generally not sometimes there are Game of Thrones episodes where not a lot a single thing happens um that you you feel like you can point to, but uh Deadwood is a lot of that, you know, it's hard to it's not like some big battle scene or some, you know, major event. It's all very just um it's like everyday life, where you know more dramatic things happen. But I mean, it, it it is. It does feel like a day in the life of this town. And actually, this episode picks up immediately uh, from the last episode. It just walks right into it, which I thought was an interesting. Um, I like I like I said, I remember the show pretty well from when I watched it, but I don't remember little things like that. And I hadn't realized that it just moves right into uh, like we we closed in the last episode with Trixie and Al in, in bed together, and then it opens the next morning. Uh, on them, uh, getting out of bed, so I thought that was I thought yeah that was this kind of cool.
0: This feels very much like the second part of the uh, premiere. Um, mm, I don't know if yeah, they are together, but it I definitely got the impression that like the uh, this these two episodes were meant to be the opening of the show more than just the first episode was. Mm. Yeah, because like you said, it's it's everything is a direct continuation of what happened in the first episode. It, it, it I gotta say, like I I actually enjoyed this episode a lot more than uh, the first. And I really think interesting. Okay. It was because in retrospect, I think it was because, um, the first episode is kind of incomplete and, you know, obviously shows kind of leave storylines off mm. all the time at the end of an episode. Um, but this is an instance where it felt very much like, um, you needed to see the rest of this, basically. You, ne- you needed to see how everything played out to kind of get a full appreciation of the arc of both of the episodes. Mm. Um, not that the first episode is bad by any stretch of the imagination. I like you know <laughs> like you can listen go back and listen to last week. I liked it uh, quite a bit. But I like this episode more because I felt like I had um you know I felt like I had my feet uh, kind of planted in Deadwood mm-hmm. and I could uh more fully engage with the main storyline of the episode and but also kind of the uh the smaller side ones and the characters now that I kind of know w- who everyone is, and I kind of know where everyone's head is at. Um, I think so, anyway. Um, I can. It's easier for me to, like I said, to engage with what's actually going on.
1: So part of me is wondering if you liked it more, maybe just because of that, you know, because you, you know, when you first get used to something, you're not really, you're not really acclimated to the environment, and it can take a while. And then it's funny, because you'll go back, and things make more sense, or you realize that this character was involved in this, and you hadn't realized who that character was at the beginning, so you didn't note it in your head and so later it makes uh when you rewatch it 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 sort of has that um that rewatchability effect which is kind of nice. Um yeah, one wh- one thing I noticed about this so now that I'm paying attention to things like writers and who's behind things. So this was written by Malcolm uh McRory and uh it's funny because <laughs> much like much like Firefly uh and I I don't want to just keep comparing this to Firefly but but much like Firefly um, you know, Joss Whedon has a very – he had, Joss Whedon writes a certain way to begin with, um, but specifically in Firefly, he had his own little uh, lexicon and things that he liked to do. Uh, but there were a bunch of writers and directors on that show, and they all wrote with a very similar voice. Um, there were certainly episodes that uh, – had their own distinct flavor but in terms of how people spoke and the rest of it it was all very consistent and I, it's funny about this episode is it's written by it's not written by david milch but it feels like it was written by david milch even though it's a completely different writer i don't know if you felt the same way but
0: oh no yeah it definitely feels like you know i didn't feel that as much in the directing i gotta say but maybe i think that's the um the directing felt different that can be, that's for sure yeah definitely and that's kind of the maybe that's the problem of just like would you get someone like uh walter hill to direct your first episode like it's hard to get it 's hard to get a follow up who can really measure up not just in terms of uh skill but it, you know it it looks like a tv show uh in very broad strokes but also in specific ways uh much more so than the first episode did, which felt like it was it, which felt like a someone whose experience primary experience was in film mm. Well, it's uh, interesting because it. this Davis
1: Guggenheim, who directed this, is a is a film director. I mean, he we talked about him last time, but that's, he he did a lot of documentaries.
0: That's true. But a documentary director. But what's funny about
1: this is that so I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a lot of close-ups that are like uh, about shoulder length, you know, shoulder height, um, that almost look a little fisheye. I don't know. Maybe it was just my perceiving it, but he there, he does a lot of those shots, and it almost I I was trying to think about if this was something that. Uh, you know we see in documentaries or for that we see in specifically his documentaries but i don't really remember that i just he did it a lot more than we saw in the first episode with um uh, with the other directors. so i i think it's it's definitely this was definitely a distinct episode in that regard
0: yeah well let's i mean that's the classic tv setup right is um you get kind of a medium wide establishing shot of a room and then you just cut back and forth between close ups of the characters that are talking um because when you're making a tv <laughs> no, show but that's not what I'm and talking you don't have about a lot though. of What are you, what are you talking, I misunderstood.
1: Well, yeah, so I'm not talking like the shot, reverse shot type of, you know, uh, you know, basic conversation stuff. I'm talking, um, uh, for example, one that just comes to mind most immediately is when um, Al's left the tent after he goes and sees the kid. um, And uh, as he turns, he turns around and that is a shot, reverse shot, but it just, it, it just, it's real tight. Like it's it's not like the chest. It's like right up to the face, and letting the face sort of be like the pivot point. If you were talking a uh, fisheye, even though I like I said it's not a fisheye, but it's almost like a um, uh, maybe a wide-angle lens, or I don't know what they're using there. Yeah, like it's I think that's weird... what I think. Yeah, you think that's that's
0: normal? Yeah, no, I, you're right. It's not. I mean, <laughs> I I don't know. Maybe we're miss. You know, obviously this episode aired twelve years ago, so maybe. TV did look like this in 2004 and I just don't remember. Um but I I agree with you. I think you're right. This this is it's certainly compared to the way that TV's tends to be shot nowadays. It, it it looks unusual. Um right. And I yeah, I don't I don't know if you attribute that to Guggenheim being a primarily uh documentary director, although I don't think he I'm trying to look trying to find his uh No, okay. So when he directed this, he had only directed one film, and it was—it's called Gossip, and it's a a teen psychological thriller. Get this, get this, this this teen psychological thriller starred James Marsden, Lena Headey, Norman Reedus, and Kate Hudson as <laughs> teens. This was in the year two thousand.
1: Oh my God, that's amazing! I know, right?
0: <laughs> um, look where their careers all then,
1: went. They all—they all, they all uh, blew up. Yeah. So, <laughs>
0: um, and yeah, and then he didn't direct another film until. An Inconvenient Truth, and that was in 2006, huh. and almost all of his other films since then have been documentaries, so I think maybe he, I, I mean, I don't think at this point he had really, Interesting, like, I didn't
1: realize that was the timeline, that's, that's. Uh...
0: Yeah, yeah, it seems like he hadn't found his niche in documentary uh, until an, an Inconvenient Truth. Interesting. And then he kind of decided that he liked that again. I mean, when he got nominated, I think he won an Oscar. I, he might have won an Oscar, uh, but certainly
1: the, the sheer fame of that documentary would might force someone's oh, yeah. pivot, career pivot. Um, but yeah, so, uh, yeah, anyway, I, just, I thought this was interesting. It was clearly very distinct, but those shots stuck out to me the most out of any of the uh, the differences in this episode. Um, but I don't know if I felt like it looked more like TV, uh, especially since, I mean, the thing is, it's always going to be consistent about this shot. I mean, not in terms of the filmmaking, like in the actual camera work and, and, that, and that end of things. Um, but the production values are always going to be the same because it's always the same cast and the same set and the same, you know... All of that, you know, the costume design and the art direction is all going to be very consistent. Uh, it's not like even in Game of Thrones, you're going to be jumping from place to place. so You're going to have this variability depending on if they're going to spend time developing this location, or if it's a different team of people, or if it's whatever. Um, so that element also keeps it, I think, very consistent. So that and the writing and everything else, I think, while while we do see some filmmaking differences, it's they're not huge.
0: Yeah, and well, that's another thing that's kind of changed in terms of how TV tends to go today because um i don't know i don't i don't know if you watch uh, Mr. Robot uh i love i love love the either. first season mm. it's really good i got to say um <laughs> and it's it it indulges in a lot of tropes that exist in things that you know that i hate and i won't say what those things are because it kind of spoils it but uh it does it really well and it's directed uh so uniquely it is such a singular visual style mm. um but the first season had a lot of different directors but the showrunner was uh Sam Esmail and there was a consistent visual style uh extremely consistent and uh because just because it was so distinct it kind of had to be um but now that was season 1 and in season 2 Sam Esmail is just going to direct every episode himself <laughs> um maybe he got tired of telling that, everyone what to do and just decided he would do I it. guess so yeah um still he, he's sharing writing duties I think but that is much more a kind of the the tv auteur as it were has become much more of a thing now than it was in 2004 you know like when we talk about i don't know, vince gilligan vince gilligan doesn't direct every episode of breaking bad or better call saul but he is the showrunner you know showrunner yeah but in those, all caps, i would say those episodes those
1: varied varied more but I, as compared with say um house of cards i think david fincher set oh like, yeah like whatever that show is it's been that same way since david fincher directed
0: Absolutely, um, yeah. So, and I'm also thinking of like I didn't see the season two of True Detective, but season one was you know all directed by uh, Carrie Fukunaga, mm-hmm. and we talked. To, I remember us talking about how um, there was that dissonance in that season between. Oh, yeah, that was bizarre. What, what he wanted to do, and what um
1: Where the uh, story Nick was The writer wanted
0: to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there was this very clear visual uh, and and uh, storytelling uh disconnect right um but that was an example of someone you know that was a season of a tv show and it was just all directed by the same person um and it had a consistent visual style whether or not that actually suited <laughs> the, <laughs> the material season. right right um right. but no, i i mean i agree with you i, I think that the job of this sh- obviously the job of the showrunner is to kind of uh keep that consistency if they can Or to not keep that consistency, if that's what benefits the show. Mm -hmm. Right, right, Um, if
1: it's like episode-to-episode variation, if that's a good thing. But I think,
0: I I get the impression that, you know, Deadwood probably benefits more from that kind of, at least, or really any show probably, in the early going, benefits more from a kind of steady flow, just to kind of establish what the show is all about. Mm. And then, once people have an understanding of that, then you can go off the rails a little more because you know you have something to come back to. If deep water was like wildly different from the first episode and it is different, it is different in a lot of ways, but if it was just, especially in the writing, just wildly different, um, then I would be sitting here like, I still don't know what to make of this show right, right, whatsoever. Right, right. Um, but the fact that I'm sitting here saying, I feel like I have a better I understanding have a, of it. Yeah. I get exactly. Yeah. Like I said, I have my kind of my feet planted in it. Um, I think that's... Yeah, it's certainly a testament to me. I mention.
1: mean, so I from my memory of the show, um, I don't remember going like, oh, that was a weird episode that didn't really match the rest of the episodes. I, I hadn't been... At the time, I was fully conscious of directors and writers and stuff, although I wasn't paying attention for Deadwood. Uh, and I didn't say to myself, oh... Uh, that was a weirdly directed episode. It didn't seem to fit or anything. So I don't, I don't know that this. I, but I could be wrong. I could, you know, maybe I'm misremembering. But I don't remember there being a distinct uh, or something, some sort of point where they decided to start getting all individual. But, but again, and we'll and we'll get to see. What's interesting, what I like is when you have the same directors cycle in again later, so you can say, oh, it's one of those episodes again, and you can see the parallels there. Um, so I guess we'll have to wait and see until we have a better grasp of who's directed what.
0: Yeah, and although Guggenheim's directing the next episode too, I see, so. <laughs>
1: oh, interesting. Okay, cool. So then we'll get to it once. Um, hmm. But anyway, so on to the actual episode. Uh, that was yes. a lot of meta-commentary. Um, <laughs> so, it's interesting, uh, last episode we talked about the gun and what it was for and the rest of it, and this episode opens with Swearingen actually asking uh, Trixie right off the bat what the gun was for. Um, I guess, <laughs> like, they just didn't even, you know, they could have just let it, let it ride is you know well we we all we all know what that gun was for but he's like no it was you know it was the gun for me uh and she's like yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so uh, yeah i thought that was uh i thought that was funny um so yeah so that's just a, a a quick opening scene uh we move on to um the preacher so what do you what do you make of the preacher i'm curious he's he's only i think he's hilarious I, episodes, but
0: yeah i think he's really really funny um this episode, by the way, is in general I, th- I thought a lot funnier than uh, the previous one. Oh, interesting! Not okay. because the previous one was not because the previous one was like deadly serious; like it certainly had kind of moments of humor. But I there were mom- you know, I laughed more at this episode than I did the the previous one, and I like that the show is. I like that it opens itself up to that. I like that it isn't because uh, this is such a grim setting. Oh gosh, yeah. It could very easily it could very easily be the type of show that just yeah. takes itself super seriously. Um, so the fact that it doesn't, and, I, and the the preacher character is such a great example of this guy who, um, you know, there's a version of the show I think where Bullock is like the super gritty protagonist um, who has like you know he tries to do good but he uh, you know there's darkness inside him. Um, <laughs> And the fact that he, so the scene where he has to deal, with, any scene where he has to deal with this preacher is just so funny because you, you know, I I think at least I am am kind of conditioned to expect that kind of tone out of this setting, mm-hmm. um, so to include such a like goofily out of place character in that, and um, Garrett the uh, the city boy, yeah. kind of fills a, a similar role mm-hmm. in ter- you know, just these characters who very clearly have no place uh in deadwood whatsoever but who were there and you know have to interact with people and um my favorite part my favorite scene in the whole episode was uh when the preacher asks bullock and um and star if they'll come to the funeral and they there's like that it, it like hangs on them for a little yep, moment yeah. like <laughs> like uh, they totally get guilted like into it <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> um that definitely had was, a, a an air really, yeah, it's of just, a
1: reality like it's a, a... he's a
0: really funny character and mm-hmm. it's i hope he sticks around i hope i hope this isn't um i don't i don't want to eat my words but i'm, I'm hoping that <laughs> this isn't the type of show that will uh kill that character off just because, you know, just because that's the kind of show it is, just to show how grim and gritty it is. Right, 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 um, right yeah. If the character does die, I would hope it would have a little more, uh, the show would have a little more empathy for him. <laughs>
1: right, right, yeah. So I, it's, um, I like his character a lot uh, in terms of, like, I think what's unusual about him is that he's really, uh, at least from what we've seen of him so far, there's really nothing more to him. Like, he, he really is <laughs> yeah. just that guy. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that it's cool because there's a lot of characters who are pretty complex and interesting and 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 uh, deep. Um, but this just character whose whose existence is morality <laughs> and is is this mm-hmm. just like you know? Of course we're gonna bury him. Of course we're gonna do this. And of course I'll do this. Now to be fair, also he mm-hmm. likes he he clocked them when they came in as people he might be able to work with. Uh, Cause he, I, they, I mean, I don't think they picked a preacher out of the crowd to look after the store in the first episode. I think he probably volunteered or was happened to be walking by or, or was interacting with them, and then they were like, "Oh, can you watch the store?" I, I don't know because we didn't see that, um, but he saw that, and then he also, you know, they were, they did ask specifically for him to prepare this, uh, this coffin for this guy who nobody else seems to care about. And nobody else showed up for his funeral. Nobody else. So they asked for this. So whatever Bullock's, you know, you know, I I don't do religion or whatever his. I don't know what his his deal is or his seriousness. He at the very least, and or Saul thought this was a valuable thing to do. And so, what I think the preachers attracted to this, this quality in them that at the very least they see the value in like a, a you know a decent burial kind of thing. You know, like that kind of. Yeah. He sees a little bit of good in them and just has latched onto that, which is probably not hard in a place where people are, there. There isn't really much good, you know, or over goodness. <laughs> uh, so I like that. I like that element.
0: Well, what I what I'm really interested, I'm going to use the preacher actually to launch into kind of a broader character thing that I noticed in the episode. Um, the preacher and he probably has a name that I don't remember. Um, he, he is a unique character because he is the only kind of prominent character in the show right now, to me, that seems to take everyone at face value, and mm. he can only be taken at face value. Mm-hmm. He seems to kind of... He treats everyone just, you know, as they are. Um, he doesn't seem to... No one no one seems to treat him as though he's, you know... A, a, no one treats him as anything different than how he presents himself to be. Right. Um, he's just who he is. Whereas Although every other character is... on this show... There is that
1: scene where Johnny's that? sort of messing with him, um, before that's bef- true. Before the scene later, I mean, but he's treating them as he's treating them as like a not a, but like, you know, it's so hard to explain this this archetype of a character. But I know it's an archetype because I met somebody just like this preacher guy, uh, and he <laughs> went to he went to my high school, and he was just it was it was actually just, wonderful guy, just the nicest guy, but like he just. He never got involved in fights. He just, every time, if, if he was dragged into something, he would just go, like, no, like, I don't think this is, you know, what we should be doing. And, like, no, I don't really do that sort of thing. You know, like, he was, like, it's like he walked out of a, 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 a like, a school video on how to, like, be a polite kid. <laughs> like, just what, where did you come from? Like, I don't think, because you see those, you go, nobody actually talks like that. Like, that's the kind of person he is. And so... I'm sure people I this this kid I, as far as I knew everyone liked him because he was just a nice guy um, but I'm sure you could take you could see how somebody would see that and want to take advantage of it or at least make fun because you know all that does is make someone angry and want to mess with them even more because it's like you know argh. Um, so uh, so Johnny's sort of prying information out of him um, but also you know he's also sort of... You know, playing with him a little bit. So I think that that element is also interesting, where people see him as vulnerable and and maybe usable for their purpose.
0: The way he, that he differs from a lot of other people in terms of, I guess, more, I guess, more how he treats people mm. than how people treat him is that um, everyone on the show, in this episode anyway, they're all like talking past each other. Um, they're all talking to people uh, uh, based on this impression that they have of the other person that is entirely mm. kind of cemented by just their personal feelings and it's not really doesn't really have anything to do with what the other person is feeling or thinking or what their motivations are or anything and the two great examples of this are the scene where Bullock and Swearingen are talking yep. in the bar I knew you were going to say that yep. um, yeah um cuz Bullock is just furious with oh Swearingen he is he gets so he angry hates even him. though yeah it's and it's like to me it's like yeah, yeah you know and I, 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 he explains why he was kind of offended by what swearingen said about him but like mm. he he just goes he goes from 0 to 100 in that scene uh rage wise well he already seems and to have a huge really, issue with al exactly like, yeah and that, go. exactly and it, it's, it seems like he he seems to be treat you know i, I don't think he's probably he, he's not wrong about about al no. like we see um but he seems to be treating him based on just the impression that he gets of him more than his actual experience with him, and maybe that's his kind of like martial instinct coming out, I guess. But the way that he treats him in this scene is like he's not—he's not responding to the way that Al is treating him in this moment. He's responding to what he already thinks of Al, regardless of what Al is actually doing. And Al well, probably of doing clocked the same him thing as a kingpin, him. as a crime kingpin, as soon as he got into the town. Yeah, like I know exactly what you doing here, you know. <laughs> and Al is doing the same thing right back to him in that scene um, where he when they when the two of them sit down for their first kind of like proper meeting um he starts off with this you know joke about uh about Bullock being a quick draw uh, which kind of sets him off but mm-hmm. he what i noted in that scene is like he hell is so good at at playing people yeah. um and you know he's you know he, he knows exactly up, what he's he doing yeah he misreads he misreads uh Seth uh, and I love when he, I love the look on Al's face and Gotti and McShane is so good when he has to, uh, when he has to pivot and play off uh, his own stupidity because that like little gambit fails, mm. uh, and he looks so just furious that that Seth made him do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just brilliant acting moment. But you know, like I said, it's in this moment he is when he makes the joke. He's speaking to the version of Seth that exists in his mind mm-hmm. more than he's speaking to the actual Seth, and he—that is what you know—makes Seth so angry. Um, well, you know, it's funny. He, he, it's
1: funny how you you. So I, I agree with the beginning part of you what you're saying. I think that what the direct conflict is is he clocks him as a as a kingpin as a crime kingpin and and uh, so Seth clocks Al as a crime kingpin and Al sees him as a threat. He's the law. He's control. He's the thing that he was. He went to Deadwood to get away from, and he sees him as a spoiler. You know, like you're going to get in the way of the thing I want to do because you're not going to be able to shake the morality that you left behind. Um,
0: no, yeah, yeah but, but but what? But in this the moment, way that he.
1: But in this moment, I think I don't think he's misreading Seth. I think he's deliberately trying to piss him off so that he can get the better deal. Hmm. I think That's it's, interesting. I think it's a play because at the end, by the end of it, he's just like. He's like, well, now your friend's just lost his cool, and yada, 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 and this is the only thing I'm going to accept now, because everyone's gone crazy. But, like, he intentionally was provoking him, I think.
0: I don't know. I feel like, because this is the first time that they've really had a Mm face-to-face, I got the impression that, like, Al is... His first line of attack is to try to be friendly, basically. It's like, how can I flatter this guy? How Mm -hmm. can I make this guy feel good about me? And then we can kind of work from there, because it's easy, you know, no matter whether you like someone or not, uh, from, I guess, from a Kingpin perspective, uh, the easiest way to deal with them is if you have a good relationship with them and not a bad one. Probably, yeah. Um, So I think, to me, I think he sees Seth and he reads him uh, as, like, ego, for whatever reason. So he tries to flatter him, right? He tries to, like, make the joke about, like, oh, you know, you're, don't draw on me while I'm turned around. Um, but and that probably would have worked
1: on Bill because Bill is very oh, that absolutely yeah. about his speed and well guns. that's the
0: other yeah that's the other thing is that he suspects the two of them of being you know in cahoots and I think that's probably part of why he uh, tries to uh, get on Seth's good side that way because he if associates he's him like Bill, with, right, yeah. with Bill yeah so that's that's actually yeah that's a good point um he associates him with Bill and that leads to that misreading leads to uh him kind of revealing his uh he re- he reveals his uh machinations in this conversation mm. through his failure to to flatter Seth and he you again like i say the great acting you could just see how furious he is with himself and with both of them for you know making it happen
1: mm-hmm. right 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 Um, yeah, I really like this scene, this scene, this this whole interaction is fantastic because they have that, you have that dynamic going on and like, I I just really enjoy how they build Saul and, and Seth are the weirdest pair, you know, (laughs) why are they friends? But then you start to see why, I mean, so Seth's very protective of Saul. Um, clearly they became friends, they became friends at some point through who knows what the, you know, the backstory is there. Uh, but they balance each other out really well, right? So Saul always, Saul's not a fighter. He's not somebody who's going to... He'll defend something, but he's not, you know, going to... And he did do it with a gun in the first episode. Um, but he's not really... Uh, he's not hes not Seth in that regard. Um, but he's able to keep his cool in a way that Seth just is like a powder keg. He's just constantly about to, like, punch someone. He looks like he's always got his teeth clenched, which is partially... Timothy Oliphant, but he doesn't always, he's not always like that. Um, <laughs> he's clearly, a, he, <laughs> we, we've we seen him in other things and there's, it's not a, a, re- a requisite um, for him, but yeah. So it's, it's cool to see their, their dynamic uh, together. And the fact that, that Seth really is so protective of him and in a weirdly progressive way for that time period, you know, <laughs> the fact that he's Jewish <laughs> and that that's what he gets um, that Al, you know, makes this anti Semitic comment and then uh you know, that's what sets Seth off, you know, sets him over the edge. Um it's just an interesting little element they threw into this scene. Um but I want to talk about uh the other I would say the probably the biggest character interaction in this episode, which was probably um with Jane and Al.
0: Oh yeah, that that's the other example I wanted to talk about. Okay. Actually. Perfect. Yeah.
1: Perfect. So, just to preface this, so uh, Jane and go Jane goes and gets um, the girl from, or she she already last episode we saw they they brought the girl back, um, and she's staying with the doctor, and um, it, it looks like the it's and this is really interesting too. This is right at the beginning of the episode, but um, it looks like the girl might be all right, but the doc doesn't trust. Seth, so doesn't tell him what the situation is, uh, and certainly doesn't trust Al and doesn't tell him what the situation is later. Yeah. Um, but looks like the well, kid it seems the kid like might yeah be he, okay.
0: yeah it seems like less that he doesn't trust Seth and more that like he doesn't want it to he get doesn't out. want word exactly yeah he doesn't want Seth to go telling people that the girl is alright because he knows what's going to happen if you know he doesn't want what happens you know to end up happening which is that someone is going to come kill her because of what she saw right uh, well and very uh.
1: What I find really cool about this, the fact that, on on who he decides to tell, is that uh, he tells Seth, and Seth just, I guess he doesn't know the town that well, and he also doesn't probably feel like he has any authority in the town, because he doesn't, Um, but he feels like he just accepts what the doctor says, uh, whereas Al immediately doesn't, and immediately decides to go and check it himself. Because he doesn't trust what the doctor's saying, and so I think that it's very cool to see how these two different characters are given the same information and how they react to it with regard to the doctor and with regard to this kid. Um,
0: so yeah, Well, I mean, yeah, well, I mean Al also <clears throat> Al also needles the doctor more. Um, he, does. he really presses him, and he and he, he kind of gets him to the reveal the truth just in uh, getting him to have this outburst. Mm. Whereas, you know, like Seth just asks the question, he accepts the answer the first time and he walks away. Like you say, Al, um, I don't know if he, he probably has a suspicion, uh, or even if he doesn't, like, he probably knows that if the girl is going to live, the doctor is going to lie to me about that. Mm -hmm. So I have to, you know, try and get it out of him somehow. So he just asks, and he just pokes at him and pokes at him until the doctor erupts. um, And that just makes it clear that he's uh, been lying to Al the whole time. So you're right, it's... It's interesting the way that you approach it whereas and I, I mean ultimately the the difference comes down to the fact that Al has personal investment in uh whether or not this girl survives right, in a course. way that seth doesn't
1: um right exactly so to broaden or to go back to what we were we were saying before uh so uh doc Cochran leaves to go and deal with i don't remember what he's going to deal with, but he leaves Jane behind um and al decides oh, the, to go. it's um
0: it's the prostitutes it's that's actually another, yeah, it's um Al tells someone to go get the doctor to to come you know check up on on the prostitutes right, and you know obviously again, like a probably a ploy to pull him away from the uh from quite his possibly yeah, and then he starts place.
1: interrogating him and then goes out after uh yeah, so yeah, what did you
0: think of this scene um the scene between Al and Jane is just phenomenal it's so good it's so good isn't it it's such good it's crazy good writing it's like, the kind it, of thing i can not
1: fathom on no, again i i really don't want to keep it compared to game of thrones but just because the male female power dynamic etc stuff happens a lot in game of thrones like this is the kind of scene i can't fathom happening on game of thrones because it's like just way too subtle and interesting <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know no exactly um, exactly yeah it's 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 such a great Like I I was saying, this is a great example of two characters who are talking past each other. Mm. Um, Both of them have an assumption about... Well, okay, Jane, you know, is in the situation with the assumption that Al is there to rape the girl. Mm -hmm. And Al is not there to rape the girl. He's there to find out if the girl is alive so that he can have her killed. And both of them think that the other person shares their understanding of the situation, and they're talking as though, you know, that's the case. But both of them have completely different, you know... Intentions or understandings of what's going on, but they're able, But the conversation is still like the same. It's such a fascinating dialogue exchange. Well,
1: what's interesting though is that I don't know if she thinks that that's necessarily what he plans to do. I think she's just feeling protective of the girl.
0: Well, she says she'd do it to me if you have to
1: do it. Oh, okay, interesting. Well, I I assumed it was. Okay, I just assumed that it was they were talking about killing. And clearly, she says something happened to her when she was a kid. She mentions yeah, that. That, that, that bit was later.
0: the line that. That was the line that tipped me off to it. And uh, yeah, she says later about, uh, I think to Charlie, she talks, she elaborates a little bit more about it, but um,
1: right, I think that, yeah. And I think, but I think what I find so interesting about this though is, you know, what this moment is, at least for her, was it what it seems like to me is like, that's, that's what triggering is. Like, that's what that is. Yeah, He walks in yep. and his appearance, his conduct, his confidence, his aggressiveness, His, like, you know, I have every right to be here, basically, attitude on the whole situation, where he's basically ignoring her and condescending her the entire time, um, is, it just sends her, she just collapses, she completely loses it, and I think that that's, it's so interesting, and she, and then she's beating herself up about it for the rest of the episode, and I was, it's this whole, like, you can, there are dramatic movies about this, Kind of interaction that could be, you know, an hour and a half long, you know, about this sort of mm-hmm. trauma manifesting in daily life, and like they just do it all in this one little, you know, hour-long chunk. I, I just I found it really, really interesting. Their their uh, interactions, particularly how Jane reacts to it, um, and then how she reacts later when she goes to talk to Charlie, and she's just Charlie, who she doesn't like, uh, and just can't help but you know, you know, cry over this because she's just so she felt helpless. She felt like it was a repeat of whatever happened to her before because she wasn't able to protect this kid, um, and then she's you know determined to do something about it, uh, drunkenly of course because she's a little out of it. But um, yeah, it was just a, a really intense and crazy scene that's hard to grasp at first because you're not really sure why why she's she seems so tough and rugged, and then she just sort of loses it uh, when Al shows up. So yeah, it's a I really like this scene.
0: Yeah, And I gotta say, that's probably also the kind of uh, nuance you get when you have uh, women in the writers' room, Mm. which Deadwood, I'm looking, Deadwood, uh, at least for season one, did. Uh, (laughs) Good on you, David Milch. But yeah, like women haven't, like you say, women haven't written Game of Thrones for a long time so I think, I don't want to attribute all of their writing problems to that, certainly, but I think you can, I think it's a fair argument to make that there might be more uh, nuance in the Gender constructs of that show, if there wasn't just one gender writing it, yeah. Uh, so it, you have three men writing it,
1: and then it's based say. on a book by a guy
0: too. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, that's this is a great example. Stuff. Problem, and uh, you know, uh, a woman didn't write this episode specifically, right. I mean, like you said, Malcolm McCrory wrote this, but um, the 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 uh, ability of women to contribute to the writing of a show, uh, I think you're going or any, you know. Any group of people that isn't uh, the the straight white cis man, I guess, <laughs> right. uh, you're gonna bring. And, and if you have characters who you know represent whatever group you're a member of, um, they're gonna be able to bring that nuance to the writing. And be, because the scene and, kind of, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it's the perspective. The scene relies on a perspective that um, a male writer might not have.
1: Right. Right. Right, exactly. And I think what's really, what's what's cool about this, and and I think it's partially because the show is so focused and is so consistent um, style-wise and tone, uh, tone-wise tone that, you know, again, on Game of Thrones or in shows where they're a bit more, um, you know, globetrotting, you, you're not necessarily getting everyone in the same place at the same time. I would imagine these writers are probably more tight-knit because they all have to maintain this same they're picking up right one right after the other they're all working with the same set the same characters the same place they're not going anywhere they're not doing anything so I think that that also helps the intimacy of writers affecting one another and so whatever perspective that was probably did help and I imagine you know I'm sure individual writers wrote episodes themselves. I don't know what the, pro- the process was for writing these, but I'm sure that they also worked together on episodes or used each other for ideas and, and building stuff too. Which is again more doable when it's all focused on this one, you know, town, uh, in the case of Deadwood. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so yeah, so this was a really good uh, really interesting scene. Um I also <laughs> I found it uh funny a bit later, so just because we're still on we're we're on Jane anyway. Um so I like her. I really like her dialogue with with Charlie, uh, where they're they both. So they don't like each other, but they both have this devotion to uh, Bill, uh, which is very clear in the first episode for Jane for sure, and certainly Charlie has this devotion to Bill, where he's trying to save him from himself, basically.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to talk. I want to talk about Charlie a little more later, but uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That his relationship with Bill is really interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um,
1: but, but but they are able to relate on that front. And so, you know, the first thing she asks is, you know, where's Bill? Um, and I think that dis- – and it's funny because last episode, he, you know, we didn't really talk about this, but Charlie says, you know, I don't know what I ever did to her to make her hate me, but, you know, she hates me. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But he's more than willing to support her when she needs support. And, uh, you know, I love that scene where she goes to – you know, to – uh, it it doesn't work, but she decides to keep an eye on the gem and on the uh the little medic hospital thing, um and Charlie goes and stands with her, and it's just such a sweet moment where he just decides to also drunkenly stand next to her, and then it turns out she can't even see anyway. It looks like she needs glasses or something, um and uh. And then they don't know all of Al Swaringen's people, so when the actual guy walks by, um, Dan, they completely miss him because they don't know who they're even looking for. They just assume it's going to be Al, um, like Al's going to do his own dirty work. I mean, it's come on. Um, so, but it's just it's a sweet scene where they, you know, you you, you see this again, another uh, couple of people, and and also the thing is. Um, she's incoherent right she's crying and she's sobbing and what she's saying isn't really making any sense but and charlie's not involved with this kid or any of that that storyline he's just willing to accept that she's very upset and willing to give her a little bit of a hand and um, and realizes very quickly that her plan to go in and attack al is a terrible one and sort of gets her out of danger and then supports her and i think that that was just i just really like that um that dynamic uh, even though yeah, they're, I, I they're exactly, clearly yeah. not friends <laughs>
0: <laughs> um
1: but yeah, so you want to talk about Charlie a little bit
0: yeah it's um what you mentioned about um about saul and uh and Seth, I think is kind of reflected in like we talked about last week how um Seth and bill are uh reflections of each other in a certain way mm. uh, i think they're uh they're you know right hand men are as well in a, certain way and you kind of get that directly referenced in the scene where Charlie asks uh, Seth and Saul like um, you know what's your secret because mm. uh, I don't know how to deal with Bill because he cares about him very deeply very you know clearly but he doesn't he doesn't know how to like you said he doesn't know how to save Bill from himself um, because their relationship even if they are very close friends is pretty clearly asymmetrical um, I guess that seems to be the secret, right? <laughs> Ultimately, right. is that uh, Seth and Saul treat each other as equals, but, like, you know, Bill Hickok is Bill Hickok, and um, even, I i get the impression that even his best friend, like, you know, can't order him around. Like, he says to Charlie very directly, like, don't, you know, herd me around like I'm cattle or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, he doesn't say that as, you know, from an ego perspective, I don't think, but just from a very
1: you know well, it's, kind not of really reasonable. Clear. Like, it's not really it's clear it's not really clear it is yeah. it is a little
0: vague but i i, I got to say i got a very my impression of of bill kind of increases the more i see him just because he seems like a better and better person <laughs> um in every scene and you know in a more much more sympathetic person in every scene like i really i felt for him in that moment when he says you know when he says that to charlie like please don't you know shuttle me around um even though charlie is looking out for his best interests like that kind of, the fact that he doesn't want to be uh, controlled by someone, that he wants the freedom to make his own choices, even if they're bad choices, I that's a, that's to anyone kind of a, a sympathetic, uh, an, an easy to sympathize feeling.
1: And maybe that's why he came to Deadwood, but it also makes you wonder why he left his, you know, is that also why he left his family, that he didn't want to be tied down by that responsibility? Um yeah. it's not really clear, right? Um and, and the other yeah. reality is, you know, this is what Charlie gets in trouble for is saying that he's pros- he's there to prospect and, you know, uh Bill's not happy that he revealed that information to the entire world. Um but maybe he's there to prospect to pay off debts that he owes for gambling in other places too. It's not really clear. Right? Um Yeah. I think but I like their I do like their dynamic and I like I like this idea that Charlie, you know, and he's like, I, you know, you don't have to just, I'd want you to talk to, if you have a chance or you run into him, just keep an eye on him, look out for him. And Seth, at least Seth takes this to heart when he, you know, he just wanders into that bar a little bit later and, um, and just basically sticks around to make sure that Hickok is okay. You know? Um, and it turns yeah, out in that moment he like, needed him.
0: Yeah, exactly. He stays, um, you know, it's it's because but it's because Bill, like, recognizes the threat. Mm. I don't think Seth recognizes Seth doesn't no. see what going what's going on until and that's, you know, that's probably that's Bill's real strength, I think, is his ability to see when people are coming for him. Mm. Um and I guess if you're like the legendary outlaw you probably have to. Like that's the whole quick draw that's the whole concept of being a quick draw, is like you have to see when someone's going for their gun mm. before they even know they're gonna do it. Right. Um so that so that you don't die and that's Bill's, you know, that is Bill's skill set right well, there. Well, and also, he wasn't um, a,
1: he was an outlaw, he was a marshal, so he was always probably the
0: target of that's criminals, right. you know. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I, 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 go ahead. I think of him as, I think of the character just, you know, in kind of a Western myth as, like, an outlaw uh, figure, which, yeah, you're right, in, in Deadwood, at least, he, I don't know what he did in between being a marshal and coming to Deadwood, yeah, who knows, uh, right. or if there was any time in between, but... Um, he certainly has a rep- he certainly has a reputation uh, for shooting, and I don't know if that was um, I don't know what side of the law he was shooting from, but right,
1: right, right, yeah. Well, it seems like right. So if my understanding of the care of the like historical person was that, or at least according to Wikipedia, my understanding is Wikipedia, um, mm-hmm. is that he was a scout, a lawman, a gunfighter, and a gambler, um, predominantly. Mm-hmm. But he was also the subject of a lot of like you know legends and stories about the West and that kind of stuff. So. Um yeah, I don't know that he was an outlaw, but regardless, always looking over your shoulder, I'm sure as a you know, the more famous you yeah. get as that kind of person, the more everyone wants to be the one who killed you, or the one who outdrew you, or the one who whatever. Um there's a lot of uh a lot of responsibility that comes with reputation in that regard. Just one thing I didn't mention before, but I really, really like is <laughs> one of my favorite bits of writing this whole episode is when Al and um Going back to Alan and Seth, uh, when they're getting into their heated argument, um, when at some point he says something like, uh, or Seth says, I don't remember who says what, but they, the other one repeats it slightly differently, but he says, what business is that of his? And then he repeats it like, what what?" I don't. I don't remember how he repeats it, but they're just so angry at each other that they're arguing the semantics of the phrasing of the conversation. Like that's how um, palpable the anger is at that point. Oh, Um, you know what it was? It was when
0: um, it was when I think what you're talking about is when Seth describes the uh the shooting as a turn of events. Oh, right. (laughs) And um, and Al repeats it like he's never heard the phrase before, like a turn of events. Like we, you know, I almost believed for a second that he had literally never heard that phrase before. I don't know what time in history that well that it, phrase kind of it's the most first started it's probably
1: Well he was he was it, the idea being it was so you know it was an occurrence, it was something that happened, you know, it's like the way things went, mm-hmm. you know. It's the most vague way <laughs> to get out of something. Um Yeah. But I think you know but it, like
0: it is like a terrible excuse, I gotta say.
1: I'm gonna talk about two moments that I think justify a little bit Al's behavior, um or at least his his outlook on life. Uh the is here, um I think he has a legitimate reason to want to know why uh, Seth feels like he can just shoot someone in broad daylight in the middle of the road. I think he wants to know what his relationship is with Bill, which is a reasonable thing to want to know. Uh, And their answers may not be sufficient because, you know, what evidence does he have that that's not the case? And being associated with Bill could bring, you know, unwanted attention. As we know, Bill attracts a lot of unwanted attention and is in serious debt which everyone knows as well. So all of these things are legitimate questions. More broadly, he has every right to, you know, you totally see his point on, you know, you could easily set up a competing establishment right in front of my face and I would have been the one to give it to you. It's kind of like Monopoly when you sell your property off in the beginning and then someone builds a hotel there, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. you're, you're screwed, right? There's nothing you can do about it. You sold it. Sucks to suck, you know? So that, and then a little bit uh, earlier in the episode, uh, there was that, interaction he has with uh persimmon phil about the fact that he and his little group uh were the ones who killed this family um and it wasn't it wasn't indians uh as we find out uh that it was in fact them and he's trying to explain the situation he's like well this is uh, what happened and no one survived and don't worry and we didn't ask your permission first but everything's okay because we did it right and yada 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 And of course, we know at this point, nothing went right. Everyone knows. And it's a big, big problem. And you start to (laughs) understand, you know, Al's really trying to hold together like a, a, you know, like a rubber band ball or something, you know, where everything's just popping off constantly and he has to keep trying to keep everything together. And when people do things like don't consult him first or, um, you know, or there's new elements in that he doesn't have control over, doesn't understand or isn't. You know, hasn't been apprised. Like, he's not. He hasn't been apprised, apprised of the situation. He has to hold. You know, he has to. You know, go out of his way to re. You know, reassert his dominance over the situation. Otherwise, it's all going to just come crumbling down, like a house of cards or something. So, um, I think it, these scenes really legitimize. It. Like, you're know, like, yeah, I. You know, I get why he's doing it. You know, um, I don't know if that. was I, the I, I
0: certainly. I certainly understand. I mean, I'll say this: I have a much better understanding of the kind of character Al is than I did last week when I talked about. You know, I don't really, I don't really have a sense of 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 who this guy is supposed to be or how I'm supposed to feel about him. Mm. Or you know, if the show wants me to feel a certain way about him, uh, which it may or may or may not. Um, I just didn't know the kind of person the show wanted me to think that he was at that point. Now I have a very clear idea. Um, he's obviously a what I would classify as a bad guy and not, not a bad guy in terms of like, a na- in terms of the narrative term, but he is just a bad person. Um, mm. He, he has no qualms about murdering uh, a child <laughs> to right. protect his own, you know, to to cover his own ass. He's, he's not, although he doesn't good. do it himself. You're right, he I sent mean, someone else to do it. Well, I, well, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, he is so, you're right. The, you know, he is not portrayed as the kind of villain who just does things Senselessly, or is just you right. Know, like, he didn't send someone you know, to kill the kid. Pointlessly evil.
1: Anyway, he he went and checked first. Yeah. you know. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, exactly.
1: So, so in other words, just, but I it, think that's also a, a sense of um. There's also a sense of control there because. Um, if he went and sent someone to kill someone who was already going to die, then that would just cause an extra layer of intrigue around the town on like, why did, who killed this kid and you know, whatever. If the kid was just going to go by themselves then he would probably say, just leave them to die on their own. And so it's that kind of, you know, again, it's all, it's all related to control. Um,
0: yeah. And and it's and all, yeah. Kind of like, and it is like, it's his own control, but it's also the, uh, just kind of preserving the stability of uh of Deadwood as a whole mm. um like I, he could have if he wanted to he could have killed Phil and uh and Tom just right there mm-hmm. and like boom situation dealt with mm-hmm. uh and it would have been oh you know and he he would have had to probably had to kill the girl too but like it would have been a much cleaner if not cleaner it would have been a much easier way to kind of deal with this situation just permanently and have it be done and that's what he does at the end of the episode but he only does it like when he, when it's his last possible option. Um, he is otherwise committed to uh, kind of doing everything, moving behind the scenes and moving kind, moving in the shadows and making sure that no very subtly moving kind of pieces. And mostly doesn't uh, do it until he has to. Place to- you know, because if exactly. he just
1: killed everyone who pissed him off, you know, Farnham would probably be dead. Um, you know, Johnny would probably be dead. The guy who comes back for dope all the time would probably be dead. These guys would be dead. He wouldn't have anyone to order around. You can't just kill everyone who pisses you off. You know, he killed these two guys because it would be more of a headache to have them be alive. And, it, you know, that's they're not any use anymore at all. But he can't just do that to everyone. You know, he has to really be a little bit you know, careful with what he's doing, you know, kill everyone and there's no one left to rule kind of thing.
0: Well, it's like, yeah, like I said, he only does it when he feels like that's the, uh, most efficient option, basically. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's not out of a sense of like moral duty. Like I can't just kill this innocent person because obviously his initial plan involves killing an innocent person, um, to, you know, to to cover his ass, but... And the implication is that the
1: whole road agents thing is something they do, he just, they just didn't verify this particular case with
0: him. Exactly, yeah, that's what I, that's what I really liked about this whole plot, is that, um, is the idea that he just, yeah, that he organizes this all the time and just says it's, uh, Native Americans, Mm. you know, attacking whites. And he says very specifically, like, um, the way that he (laughs) preserves, it's such a fascinating comment on just, like, you know, American racism in general. Um, one of the ways that he preserves order in Deadwood is by uh, creating this, like, social structure where uh, the whites are constantly under attack from the savages, yeah. uh, the, you know, the savage Indians. And, um, of course, that's not true. And he's and I think he says in his episode, like, if people find out that it's whites who have been killing whites, they'll, you know, they'll go crazy. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and so it's like, of course, you know, exactly. he is basically... He has invented this you know f- false reason for people to be racist because it is uh it makes it easier to deal with than having people uh understand that there's really no racial component to these murders at all, and not only that but it is people of their own race yeah right <laughs> who are killing them for completely selfish reasons it's easier for he sees it as you know he's he sees People as uh, more easily understanding things from that racist perspective, and he's more than willing to. Well, and it
1: distracts it. everyone from the actual thing that's going on, and that's really that's really good for yeah. his business and for whatever he's trying to do. And you know, not to politicize it, but you know, bearing on reality a little bit, there it was kind of a an interesting commentary certainly about society and how 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 that kind of stuff gets scapegoating is a common theme that we see um, mm. quite frequently. So, yeah, I thought this... Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, and by the way, so tense. This was another t- tense scene where he's talking to um, Phil about his... Where he's trying to he's trying to get him to basically fess up to what actually happened and, and not revealing that he knows exactly what happened and that this girl is alive. And that whole scene is so tense. Um, but I really like how it's undercut too with Tom running in naked um <laughs> like it's just bizarre and oh, by yeah. the way did you recognize tom
0: i know it's nick offerman it's,
1: what the hell is that i couldn't believe i it. lost my mind when i was, I was <laughs> looking i was like no and then i looked at the ingv page i was like oh my god he was also an nypd blue so he's worked with david milch before i guess that was his that might have been where he started i guess um yeah,
0: I got to say this this setting is like the this is the setting that Nick Offerman was born to oh, play so in. Oh, so beautiful. He just Yeah, exactly. He's just perfect. He looks like he belongs in the old West, you know, just in real life at any given time. Um he's he's just such a such great casting, I guess. It was great.
1: Um although, you know, now he's gone. So, uh Yeah, that was um a short-lived little cameo from Nick Offerman there. Um but uh yeah and what did you think so again um we had another stabbing scene in this uh with uh with Phil uh and and Al actually doing the dirty work himself which he doesn't usually do. Um Yeah were you, su- yeah, were you surprised it, by that scene at all or like how it went down or were you basically expecting it?
0: I wasn't surprised I got to say. I think yeah I was every second that he was like looking in that safe I was like he's going to pull out a gun or <laughs> yeah. something like that's obviously what's happening. There's no way he's going to, you know, play along with this guy's absurdly complicated plan <laughs> well, what's so funny um, what's so funny yeah i know where
1: he's like oh i'll just check in there you know and you'll have to leave messages you know, we'll leave a message me. under a rock like what <laughs> um but what's funny is i remembered this scene like i remember that he this guy dies and i was like wait how does he die and then it happens so quickly and i'm like whoa oh yeah right he just stabs him because I, I thought it was a gun or something i couldn't remember what happened. Um yeah, uh, it was. Yeah, the only reason I brought it up is that it, it, comparing it to last episode, where um, uh, what's his face, Tim Tim Driscoll's killed, um, again, that was like one one stab, and in this case, it's, a, it's very similar. Like they don't really drag these things out. Um,
0: oh no, yeah, we don't even see the actual like, you know, penetration of the knife. We because we're yeah, the camera behind. Mm-hmm. Actually, I don't think, we don't think we've seen back.
1: any. Have we seen any blood?
0: Except um, for the, I, I guess the um,
1: the guy who got shot in the head, we saw some, but it's very little so far. Yeah,
0: I mean, we see we see a little bit of the corpses uh, mm. at the, in the first scene of this episode actually, which we haven't even talked about. But, but it's you know it's kind of, I know it's short, um, but yeah, it's not a gory show. And the other thing is, you know, if we're talking about gore as like an HBO mainstay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um the very in one of the early scenes in this episode, we get uh, full female nudity, and I was like, "All right, well, you know, they have to." It's HBO. But then we get full male nudity in this episode too. Yeah, but I'll say this, you <laughs> know, I,
1: yeah, it was f- female nudity, but it is the. I don't think in the fr- you can say in the framing, but I guess just narratively, there's nothing. It there's no it doesn't feel um, like we're meant to. Oftentimes nudity, especially in 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 a show like Spartacus or in a show like. Um, uh, Game of Thrones it's often in Spartacus it's much more equitable but it's definitely like look naked people how cool is this this is naked people that scene with Trixie not a not a sexy scene not a scene that was like look at the no it was just you know depressing
0: well yeah her nudity is like her nudity is like incidental. It's I think, inti- to, the, to the one shot that it's. It's, in.
1: it's incidental and very like normal. Like you know, one of the things that's funny that you know when you get, when you get older and you start you know you go into the real world, you realize that like nudity in the real world, and actually you know what 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 does really bring this back to um television, Seinfeld does this really well when they uh, Jerry dates the nudist and he goes good nudity bad nudity and he's dating this cuz he's like it would be great you know she's naked all the time it's how what, that would be you know who who wouldn't like that um but she's <laughs> oh you know she's like grabbing things from shelves and whatever and it's all these weird angles you're not expecting and of course, in movies and in shows and stuff, when they have nudity, they always do the most glamorous possible angle. Um, in this case, like when she's getting out of bed, it's like it's like yeah, if you were naked in bed and you got out of bed, that's what it would look like. It's not interesting. It's just someone's naked. Like being naked isn't inherently. But the way it's often portrayed, if they're going to do nudity, they usually do it in a certain sensual sort of way, and they don't do that here. Um, and then also later, like like you, I think you were you were getting at. Um, uh, Tom, right? Uh, Well, uh, Nick Offerman's character is, is naked a little bit later, which is something I don't even think we've... Have we ever seen male, male nudity in Game of Thrones?
0: We see it, like, occasionally, but it's always, like... It's always the thing that the scene is about, almost. Right. <laughs> um. You know what I mean? It's like a, the example in the last season is, like, the scene literally opened on a close-up of a dick um, and then had a character discussing the dick. Ah, uh, right, right, right. Almost, I remember that, yeah. You know, in that instance, it felt like, you know, the show kind of throwing up its hands like, all right, fine, we'll do some mail. Yeah. (laughs) Happy now. Um, Whereas in this, you're right, it's uh, the shot of this shot of Nick Offerman is the exact shot that you see with, you know, naked women just all the time, constantly. Um, It's just, you know, he walks in the door full frame. Uh, The show really makes no attempt to hide any part of his body like all the way down to his feet you just see it's everything it's super goofy yeah, and um, it's super goofy too yeah and it's, it's it is exactly um, but it's very much you know the scene isn't the scene is about the fact that he bursts in naked and obviously that's the joke is that he's burst into mm. this very serious Ted's conversation just completely naked hollering about whatever um, but it's you know the, I think another show would uh, would uh, hide his nudity but still have that be the joke, like another show would kind of in a cowardly way be like, Well, we don't actually have to see him naked in order to kind of get across that that's what's happening, right. but I think Deadwood seems like a smart enough show to understand the hypocrisy of doing that in the same episode that you just you know showed a woman completely naked uh you know with no uh with no real like implications attached to that nudity, but still like you you did it like if you're gonna do that but then hide male nudity that's it's a it's a very telling choice that a lot of shows make a lot of shows make and uh i I really really appreciate and admire that deadwood is uh not doing that
1: yeah no i i definitely i definitely agree it's just something i i noticed because it's a, a subject that comes up a lot and it's funny i doubt it was something that necessarily crossed the minds of um the, the the showrunner or anything here, although maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know how much that was in the dialogue at the time. I just know now that people are very are more and more conscious of it, especially with HBO as HBO has become more and more popular over the years. Um, because you had shows like The Sopranos, where you know every episode, you know, about a Bing Club, which is very distinctly yeah, well, one that, gender. You know,
0: <laughs> exactly. And then, like, what? Uh, Who is the creator of that show? Is it David Simon? No, he David Simon did The Wire. The Sopranos is another David, I think. It's hang on, David Chase. David Chase yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, David Chase. He's talked about it. The reason he has that he included the Bada Bing Club is because HBO said you need to have a certain amount of nudity. In right, every right, episode. right. Yeah. You've... So he was like, well, you know, let's just have him hang out at a strip club, and that'll be our nudity because I don't really want to have to find a way to like work it into the plot if yeah, we have right, to do right. it every. If we have to have a certain amount. Um, which is I think, you know, as good a that's as good a an excuse to get the that nudity across as you're gonna get. But I like that what Deadwood seems to be saying is like, well look if we're gonna fine, you want nudity? Fine, we'll have nudity. We're not j- just gonna have a female nudity, right. though. Like and with, you what's, know, what's and I'm funny, sure the HBO contract doesn't
1: What's funny is we had talked we were talking about this in the context of Game of Thrones on the Game of Thrones podcast. Um Star Contrast, check it out. Uh but so we were talking there <laughs> and um I had mentioned about Deadwood that I didn't remember Deadwood being very heavy on nudity at all. I mean, there's a lot of brothel settings, uh, but it's sort of, maybe, maybe that was the condition here. Like, oh, we'll just make one of the places of brothel. Um, but, but historically <laughs> the, the gem saloon was a real place and Al swearingen was a real person. And um, you know, this preacher was a real person and Seth was a real person. So I, you know, I think that, Again, I don't remember it being a fixture of the show the way that I remember it in Game of Thrones or other shows, so um, or in Spartacus or you know, where that nudity is clearly a centerpiece. Um, and I think that this episode is emblematic of that. This is the most nudity that I can remember really getting, and it's it's so dry and not not the same kind of nudity at least as far as i uh as far as i'm concerned um so i wanted to ask uh, just two quick questions uh about two different characters uh so what what do you think of dan so far cuz so dan's been in both episodes now in fairly prominent roles so he's the one who's supposed to kill um kill the kid and the last episode he was the one who killed tim driscoll and he's and he was a little iffy about that he was like really we're going to kill him um and then in this case he was very conflicted about killing this little girl. Um so yeah, I was just wondering what you think of him so far. Uh he's a, he's a, to my from what I remember a very interesting character, so um
0: yeah, he's he's definitely what I like about him is the is the way that his reaction speaks a lot to himself and to Al mm-hmm. actually because like I think you said last week um through his reaction to have it being asked to kill being told to kill Tr- Tim Driscoll, um you get the impression that Al having, you know, people murdered isn't an everyday occurrence. Mm -hmm. So, which is an important thing to understand about that character at this time when he's, you know, having people killed left and right. (laughs) Um, It's important to really get that this is not typical for him. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you really get that with Dan, especially, like, he looks extremely distraught over having to kill the girl. And as soon as he's given an opportunity when he actually meets with the doctor, uh, he, like... He uh, takes the road out as soon as he sees it. Um, and he's like, all right, but you're coming with me in order to, you know... To sell to, this. To try to sell this. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it says <laughs> um, something yeah, really...
1: He says something really interesting, too, um, that it, the implication is that he was... He wasn't the doctor, but he served the doctor's role uh, for the brothel before the doctor showed up to town. Um, which I also thought was an interesting revelation that I didn't remember from the show at all, but that's an interesting point um that he he whatever whatever he was doing in the in the uh gem was more or less to look after the women and make sure that they were healthy and i get the impression he wasn't overly fond of that role
0: yeah he's a he's a really curious character and i do hope we see uh we see more of him and kind of get into him mm. a little more because this is another great. Ex- we talked a lot last week about uh, Western archetypes, and Dan seems like a great another great example of kind of tearing down what we expect uh, from a character. Where how many times have we seen you know the bad guy's unscrupulous, unscrupulous henchman who will just follow oh, order, yeah. whatever, do whatever the bad guy right. says because he doesn't really have any moral compass and uh, all he cares about is obeying orders and he's just evil. Um, Dan is the exact opposite of that. He's not, even though he's more easily swayed with like a
1: bribe a, or something. But in this case, he's yeah exactly. Yeah,
0: he, he seems to be in a henchman role, but he isn't. You know, he is beholden to a to his conscience and to his individuality in a way that, like, even outside of the Western, uh, henchmen never are. Henchmen are never allowed to be characters. They're just you know they they are extensions of whoever the act, the antagonist right. is. Basically, they are they are you know tools that the antagonist can use to enact. Their will um, but now we here we have a character who is exactly that he's being used by Al to you know do things that Al wouldn't sully his hands with, but he is extremely uh, he finds them so upsetting, and even though he is willing to go through with them to an extent um he is not complete, he is not wholly beholden to what Al asks him to do, and that's really just it's a cool setup for a character it is and
1: I think the other thing that's interesting is that's true of the other. I think it's true also of Farnham um, who is interesting in that he's not, he's certainly not as morally complex, but he's, he's different. He's a total suck up, right? He's always trying to get on Al's good side and get him to mm-hmm. like him and whatever. Um, and he also is sort of a, he thinks he's awesome. He thinks he's, uh, he thinks he's awesome. He thinks he's like this high class person. Cause he runs this hotel, but he runs the hotel, by the grace of Al. He runs, he does his stuff, you know, by the grace of Al and it's all sort of there, but he fancies himself this gentlemanly figure. And it's very interesting to see Farnham as well in that regard. Um, Yeah. But there's,
0: I love how he's always like, um, I think he's, he does it in this episode and last episode. I think, I think this is the same character we're talking about where he, uh, where he, he'll explain something that happened to Al and he'll be like, Oh, Al, you, you know, I did such a good job. I, you know, I didn't let, uh, I didn't give it away at all. Yeah, at hours, yeah, yeah. I that's fun. That's fun. <laughs> uh, like you say, he's trying not trying to get in his good graces, but also trying to like prove himself in a way. Yeah. Like, oh, I did. You know, look at look at how good I did. Um, <laughs> and of course, you know, his lie to, to, to Garrett is so ridiculous. Oh, it's, it is absolutely
1: ridiculous. And by the way, with the, Garrett, just on that quick note, Garrett's now smoked this whole situation. So he's yeah he's he's figured it out he's figured out everyone's playing on him he's like wait al was at every step of this adventure uh and it's like yeah yeah even alma seemed to be uh, completely aware of this situation and you were just (laughs) missing it entirely um
0: yeah i think he actually i think he literally says i thought al was my friend." yeah i thought (laughs) Al was my friend oh my god
1: so sad (laughs) but now he's figured it out it's like wow um yeah
0: and now he wants to um now he wants to get Hickok on his side which seems like a recipe for disaster. Right, right,
1: right. Well, first he tries to get when he first tries to get Farnum to buy the thing back. It's like, "Come on, you know." <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't that's the best part. He doesn't seem to th- like at first he's he's like Al screwed me over because um, Ellsworth tips him off that he would have seen gold flakes, um, and then he's like, goes to Farnum, like Farnum is his ally. I'm like, Farnum was clearly in on this whole thing too. Come on! <laughs> and then he's like, oh, I think everyone yeah. was in on this. Yeah, duh.
0: Yeah. It, well, it also like the fact that he thinks that selling the property back to Farnum will work at all. It's like imagine someone buys a claim, uh, you know, a claim of land because they think gold's on it, and then the next day they're trying to sell it. Mm. It's like anyone is going to see like huh why are you trying to sell this right. piece of land that you thought had gold in it um why are you so eager to get rid of it after one day of looking mm. at, of, of looking at it <laughs> like it's like obviously even if Farnham wasn't in on it like nobody's stupid enough to take that yeah, deal yeah of course
1: of course yeah i know he's like the claim's still good but you know i just you know i want to do other stuff you know it's like right all right <laughs> um so yeah so that was interesting so There was another character i wanted to ask you about i'm trying to remember who it was um oh it was about Alma Garrett actually we've gone right to the other character.
0: Oh there there's that uh, another mysterious scene with her.
1: <laughs> right. Um so this was interesting so uh it looks like the doctor so this is really in... so I'm reading right now uh the uh Aubrey Maturin series uh you know do you remember do you ever um see Master and Commander with Russell Crowe?
0: No, I actually have. not So
1: uh great great movie. Um it's based on Sort of a mix of a couple of different books from this twenty-one book series, and I'm on book eleven. Um, and it's about you know a, a captain and a, a naturalist slash doctor slash spy, um, who sort of sails with him, uh, and all. And it's like eighteenth century or nineteenth century British Royal Navy. Anyway, all that aside, the doctor is addicted to laudanum. Um, so like an opiate, uh, an opiate, I believe of some sort and sort of, you take the tincture of laudanum, which will, I guess, sort of put you to sleep or sort of put you in a daze and it's it's a good way to deal with pain and that kind of thing, but it's also very addictive and people get really into it. I think that's what she's taking here um and what's cool is that again we have a doctor and he often by the way the doctor often prescribes it in that in the book series to people or will say like why don't you take this it's it'll help you with the pain or whatever um but it's interesting i don't think he ever and he does it sometimes when it's not necessarily something they need but it will help them deal with you know whatever loss like love or something some some mental thing that they need to get through um and in this case it seems like the doctor's willing to just give her drugs. It seems to be what he's <laughs> saying. He's like, you know, if this imagined thing that maybe isn't real, if I were to just maybe just give you these drugs und- and not under the pretense of making up this whole story about you being sick, uh, I might still be willing to do that. And she's just not having it. And it's a very interesting scene. But basically, he's more than willing to capitulate to this.
0: Um, this charade. Yeah, yeah, I love how frustrated he clearly is. He's like, oh, I'll keep, you know, I'll keep doing yeah. this, but like, you know, this is really stupid that you're making me go through with this. Right, <laughs> right,
1: exactly. Because she has to go down, and say she's sick, and then they call the doctor, and then the doctor comes, <laughs> and then he's like, Yes, I'm sure she's sick, you know.
0: Um, like he even says, like, I have other patients. Yeah, I could sick. be helping
1: other people, and you're, you know, wasting <laughs> my time, because she could be sick. Yeah. You know, who knows? She, could, you know, any number of things could have happened to her especially
0: in the old class. Exactly. Blast. I mean he's he's as a doctor he's obligated to, you know, at least go see. Right. But yeah, I mean there's a there's a little girl in his bed who might be dying and she's calling you up to get more direct.
1: Right. <laughs> um we also get a shot of her um uh looking through a window again. Uh also this is the first time she actually <laughs> comes right. downstairs to meet everyone. Um or yeah, very briefly. yeah. And I thought it was really interesting that they compare do a direct comparison with Bill and Alma, with their his hand. So it seems like Bill's got some sort of. It's not clear what's going on with him. His hand shaking, and he can't pick up the um, the coffee kettle. And uh, Charlie picks it up for him. And then later we see a similar shot where Alma's trying to pick something up, and her hand shaking. And that seems like mm. withdrawal from drugs. Whatever Bill's got is not really clear, but that also might be a problem because. You know he relies mm. on that for his protection, so he can be the quickest. Well, that's
0: really that's a really interesting. Comp- I didn't. I, I noticed those two shots, but I didn't put that oh, together. Really? Oh, really? Oh, interesting. That. That's, yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't connect the two. But yeah, no. Now I'm thinking like I don't know if he does I drugs now or anything,
1: I, but he seems to. Well, I
0: don't know. I mean, I feel like maybe that might be the connection that the show, you know, is is getting us to. Uh, that might be the connection that the show is intending. Uh, because if those those shots are kind of specifically similar, and if we know because it's you know of a drug withdrawal issue from one character, and we know that uh, Charlie is really concerned for Bill, and it's like I can't really control of him, he gives into his vices. Mm-hmm. He's talking about gambling as far as we know, but like it's you know it, it could very easily also mean uh, drugs.
1: It could, uh, and and he does see it from across the room, and and it seems like he almost. Uh, she feels like a kinship with her for also having this weird hand thing that said it could also just be that Charlie's watching him get older and thinking you know he's not going to be able to be like, this gunslinger for the rest of his life he's got to have accounts and investments and money and things to set up for his family and he can't you know, like he's not gonna be able to live off of his physical prowess as an older person. And he's getting older and, you know, maybe he has Parkinson's, maybe he has, you know, any number of things. And Charlie's seeing this and compensating for him, but can't do that forever. And that Bill's going to need to be able to support himself. Um, so whether or not it's drugs or whatever, he's it's clearly a, a vulnerability. But I, I thought it was interesting that Bill, and it, I don't know if it'll turn into a relationship of any sort between him and Alma, like a friendship or a protection thing or whatever, an alliance. Um, but the fact that he uh sort of sees this it's almost like a an affirmation of his whatever's going on with him where he's like you know other people are dealing with this too whatever it is that i'm dealing with even if it's not the same thing it's manifesting in a similar way and i think that it's a cool little just a little character moment for him um but i yeah i like that uh yeah me too so i yeah i think that i think that about sums it up was there anything else
0: i think we about covered everything um Definitely. Uh, well, I mean, the the ending of the episode is that uh, Jane absconds with. Oh the, yeah. With so what do you think?
1: I love this is the last thing I want to talk about. The final shot I really liked.
0: Oh, so so good. pretty. Yeah. Um, I love her screaming at um. Uh, what is it? Who is it? Utter, yeah, Charlie Utter, Uh, to to sing, <laughs> to join the round of the uh, <laughs> right. of the lullaby. That was hilarious. But yeah, it's a beautiful shot of the you know the kind of the light of the wagon. As, oh, yeah. as the camera pulls back and it's just kind of becomes like the corner of the frame and the rest is darkness as the, you know, they're kind of huddled down and hiding. Uh, fantastic. You know, we, I, we, we might've been a little negative, I think about Guggenheim at the beginning of this episode, but that was such well, a. such, that's good what job, I had in my mind. Was I was looking at shot. this
1: going like, well, we're going to talk about this because I like that. <laughs> yeah. <I'll show laughs> um, yeah, I love it. I love it. And it's set against this like darkened frontier, but the lit, the lit caravan, um, sent me right back to the Oregon trail. Um, uh game Hmm. because you know it's just like yes this is it this is exactly what we uh but it's interesting like this doesn't solve the issue the kid's still around um unless jane and charlie are gonna live with this kid you know somewhere else or leave town altogether i don't you know i guess what what al was basically thinking is either i have to kill two people tom and well he basically sends tom to his death knowing full well he's gonna die and then he's gonna have to kill phil and then he does kill phil so I'd have to kill two people, or kill this girl, and I'd rather. And the girl's not useful to me. The two people are because they're my henchmen. So I would rather not kill them. But once the girl's gone and he can't get to her anymore, and he needs to wrap this little story up, he decides to kill the two of them. So that even if. This girl ever comes to and says something in English that's coherent and says it's you know it was these people, no one's gonna know. Or she won't. She doesn't know their names and is never gonna be able to figure out who these people were. Um, and so basically, she's a useless witness to a, a crime that's never going to be resolved. Um, so he, I, but I guess it was more of a calculated risk. In other words, that he he didn't want to killing the girl was a smarter and more economic option until he couldn't do that anymore, and then he just went for the two guys instead because, you know, they're the ones who actually perpetrated the crime in the first place.
0: Although, I gotta say, um, from Al's perspective, the girl is still a threat because she, even if those two are dead and can't be identified, she could still say that 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 her family was attacked by white people and not she could Indians.
1: she could but then it's like but who what white what what white people and she she can't exactly, name yeah. anyone it's, or so point it's to anyone
0: it doesn't specifically implicate al i guess but it's certainly you know like he talks about i think it it would cast doubt on uh on the narrative right that he's clearly right, right, been sure. perpetrating for a while um so yeah we'll we'll see, we'll see. i mean business. i don't know maybe <laughs> yeah I mean, we will see what he does about this uh next week i guess but right uh, yeah. yeah
1: excellent all right. So next week is.
0: Oh, I just closed it. Um, <laughs> what's it called? It has like a weird name. Reconnoitering. The... Reconnoitering the rim. Reconnoitering the rim. Reconnoitering. Yeah. Reconnoiter. Be- Reconnoiter. So I have not seen before.
1: Um. Yeah. So. Uh, yes. There's. I don't know if you're looking at a picture right now that I'm looking at. No. But you're no. not. Okay. Good. I'm on. Okay. Well, this next episode, I don't remember plot-wise about any of it, but characters. Characters exist in this episode. (laughs) I'm so tempted to just talk about it. Um, So yes, next week it'll be very (laughs) exciting. Balls are moving forward. Awesome.